Demons, the Devil, Deliverance, and the Children of God. This is part two. The text I read last week will come into play a little bit tonight, more next week. You'll see as this series um, progresses, there'll be five or six or seven in this series. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, so so what's the plan here? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances... Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's what we're going to do in prayer groups tonight. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The mystery, of course, is that there used to be two covenants. There used to be God's two people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And through Christ, now the two are one in the body of Christ, through God's grace, not by the law. That was always something that was unfolding in Revelation in the Scripture. And now... It's obvious in Christ, Paul says, that mystery. That mystery that was unfolding through the progression of revelation from old covenant to new. That mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You'll see, of course, as we get going, I can't possibly recap everything week after week after week. Some of what I said last week relates to tonight... And so this is a real brief. This is online. You can get the notes. You can see the whole video, everything else on our website. But in a nutshell, the idea is that the spiritual warfare movement, as that gets manifested in some, not all, some branches of the charismatic movement in the cleansing stream emphasis and teaching, um, again, even there, there's variations. I'm making general statements. You have to just understand that. But the idea is that you and I are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit is what gets regenerated at conversion. This is in in spiritual warfare theology. The spirit, that's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's the part of you that relates to God. And that is instantly possessed by the Holy Spirit, where he dwells within you. And, and that's the part of you that relates to God, your spirit. Then there is your soul, which is made up of your mind, your will, your emotions, feelings, that type of thing. That isn't renewed. And this is where 
in warfare theology, this is not my teaching, that's where demonic strongholds exist. Demons can get in. And so there's a big role for usually someone with, with a, quote, gift of discernment will come and say, you have a demon of fear or you have a demon of aggression or you have a demon of lust or you have a demon of poverty. I'd like that one cast out. Amen? Just whatever it is that you have that demon. And just by way of, of comment, this isn't in your notes or anything else, you need to know something. Everybody in this church ought to understand there is no such gift as the gift of discernment. Does everybody know that? There's the gift of discerning of spirits. And there's general discernment that comes the writer of Hebrews. As you use what you learn and what you know, you grow in discernment. That's available to all Christians. And there's discerning of spirits so that you will know whether uh, something is, is of the Lord or something of the devil in, in terms of, of uh, an exercise of a gift or something you see in terms of a manifestation. God gives certain people the gift of discerning of spirits. But there is no gift that enables me to come up to, to Pastor Ron and say, you know, the Lord just showed me that you have, it's a gift of discernment, you have the demon of such and such or whatever. Don't let people be Jesus for you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he speaks and he guides and he directs. That doesn't downplay the other spiritual gifts. I've taught on them and I believe in all of them and their operation in the church today. But let's not make up gifts that, that don't exist. It's usually tied in with someone who will have that false gift of discernment will come and say, you have this spirit. It's in your soul. There's a demon of this or a demon of that. What we looked at last week as we went through large chunks of scripture is that those terms are used interchangeably. You are not made up of three parts so that body, soul, and spirit are continuously throughout the biblical text separate, consistent categories. Those terms are used interchangeably. I'm not going through that again tonight. But what, what you have is a physical body. There's a visible part of you, a visible part of me, and there's an invisible part of me which is called different things in the New Testament. That's where we were last week, all right? Here's the issue I want to address tonight. So if Christians aren't in a battle with Christians... By the way, last Sunday, the other point I made was, as you go through um, the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus, the book of Acts, the ministry of the disciples, you frequently encounter, as the Gospel is spread to unsaved peoples, encounters with the demonic. No argument from me. And then when you come to 1 Corinthians on through the rest of your testament, you find no mention of, of ministry casting out the demonic uh, in any of the letters to the churches. Paul doesn't mention how they should deal with demons. It is, it is not mentioned once. You have the devil, the world, the flesh, temptation, definitely warfare. But in terms of the ministry of the church and the work among believers... The emphasis that you saw as the gospel was taken to the lost disappears when Paul is writing to the church or James or Peter or any, any, of, any of them. So, if Christians aren't in a battle with demons, and they aren't, what kind of warfare are they in and, and how do they 
fight it. And I'm going to look at one part of it tonight and one part of it next Sunday night. Let me try and define what this warfare is and what it isn't. Point number one. First, just again, there is absolutely no instruction given in the New Testament regarding speaking to demonic powers in the souls of believers. Please hear what I said and what I didn't say. There is a place for addressing demonic powers confrontationally in the taking of the gospel to the lost. You can see that, as I said, in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples in the book of Acts. Demons may be encountered in the process and there's scriptural evidence that sometimes, though not always, they are spoken to directly. Not arguing with that. But as Christians... There's absolutely no mention of speaking to demons in our own souls or the souls of fellow believers. There is not one example of that ever happening, not once in the entire New Testament. You don't find Paul speaking against the demon spirits over Ephesus or Athens, though we know that in both those cities there was all sorts of sorcery, satanic activity, idolatry. But when Paul's working with the church and working with believers, never mentions it. Actually, in a strange text, and I'm not exegeting the whole text tonight, there are actually warnings, subtle warnings, granted, against speaking to demons or demonic powers. That little book of Jude, verses 8 and 9. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. He's not talking about Christians. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, we don't have any details about that. He, this is the archangel, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a lot that I can't explain in that text, but it is interesting to me that there is still this plain warning that there's to be a humble reliance on the Lord, never an arrogant dueling it out with the devil. And if the archangel Michael left certain things to the Lord, I'm quite content to. That's all I'm taking from that text right now. But the biggest reason for not speaking directly to demons in the souls of Christians is there are no demons there to speak to. And that leads into point number two. This is where we'll spend most of our time. The inward battle of the believer is with the flesh. Um, Self. Sometimes the Bible calls it the flesh, sometimes the self, sometimes the sinful nature, depending on your translation. That's the internal battle that we face. Not demons in our souls. The flesh. The external battle is with the devil and the world. Tonight we're just going to look at the first part of this point. The inward battle of the believer is with the flesh, the self. Perhaps the most glaring flaw in the spiritual warfare movement lies right at this very point. That just as it overemphasizes the conflict with demonic in the souls of Christians, in fact, in order to overemphasize it, it must underemphasize the conflict with the flesh. 
And this can be taken even a step further. Many of those most widely read, people like Neil Anderson. I don't have any battle with Neil Anderson. He's kind of fading off the scene now. But most of the spiritual warfare authors don't actually believe Christians possess a fallen sinful nature at all. And again, because they teach that the believer's spirit, remember what I said at the beginning, is totally sanctified at conversion, then they have to find some other explanation for the sins that we commit. So where are you going to go? If the spirit is totally sanctified at conversion... The way they get around the sinful acts that Christians commit is, well, then in the soul there are those demon powers at work. So they overemphasize demons in the soul because they underemphasize the effects of original sin, the fall, its contaminating effect on our nature even after we're born again. If you doubt this, listen carefully to these words by Neil Anderson. He's one of the most popular advocates of the spiritual warfare movement. He comments on this verse, Romans 6, 12. Is that in your notes? Okay, read it out loud with me. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, listen. Listen to this quote, verbatim, Neil Anderson. I personally believe that the word sin in Romans 6.12 is personified, actually referring to the person of Satan. I would have a hard time understanding how only a principle, as opposed to a personal influence, would reign in my mortal body in such a way that I have no control over it. Well, the text A doesn't say you have no control over it. It tells you to control it. But B... That's precisely Neil Anderson's theological problem. That's a a reinterpretation of Paul's words. It's interpreting a text to make it fit a theology. And that's the problem with any who overlook the terrible results of the fall and the attending weaknesses of the flesh that we all have. Yourself, the flesh, that inward nature that is being sanctified daily as you pick up your cross and follow Christ. He's not talking about a physical cross, beating up your body. He's talking about in here. There's there's something that needs to be dealt with in here. But it's not demonic. It's the self. It's the flesh. It's that fallen nature. It's the effects of original sin that we all still carry around in our skins. John says we will until we see Jesus and we will be like him. We should have no problem understanding just how terribly weak the flesh can be all by itself. If nothing else, think about the fall, that account of the fall. It should awaken us to how weak we can be to sin, even apart from a fallen nature or any internal work of the enemy. It's important to remember. Think about Adam and Eve for a minute. They disobeyed. They fell into sin before there was any fallen, sinful human nature. The fallen nature was a result of their sin. 
They gave in to the external temptation of the devil. There were no demons confronting Adam and Eve. There was no possibility of demonic strongholds sort of being previously established in their lives. They were fresh, unmarred from the creative hand of Father God, but they messed up. And they did it all by themselves, responding to the temptation of the devil with unfallen natures at that point. That's how temptable we are. Why did they do it? Well, because human nature, the flesh even apart from its fallen condition, which we certainly now have. Just the human condition of Adam and Eve is vulnerable, temptable, open to deception. So this is the internal battle Christians still face. Now we face it with the Holy Spirit's help. I have three texts I'm going to look at in just a little while. There's not an excuse for sin or failure... But there is this call to this constant internal dying to self. The old word used to be mortification. Nobody uses it much anymore. If you have an old King James, you'll find it several times in the text. Killing the self. Denying it. Crucifying it. This is the only way the New Testament describes. This is the only way. The New Testament describes the inward battle of the Christian. I'm talking about the inward battle. We'll look at external temptation next week. I'm talking about the inward battle of the Christian. Here are some texts. I'm going to try and go quick because I've got three of them. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, quote, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, we read that so many times, that ought to be surprising to us. If I just said, you know how those things say the first word that comes to your mind, those kind of tests? If I just, if I just came to you and you didn't know better, now, now you've seen. But if I just came to you and said, who tempts Christians? My guess is 90% of us would just say, the devil. And we're going to look at that. He does. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that's not the emphasis of this text. He's lured and enticed by his own desire. Yours. Oh, don't do that. You hear that. Yeah, okay. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here you have spiritual death with no reference to the devil at all. You notice that? He's not mentioned anywhere in there. I sat stunned recently. Saw a teaching coming out of the spiritual warfare movement and the teacher actually read this passage and I thought if I was trying to make the point he was trying to make, this is the last passage in the world that I would read. And then the teacher came to this word enticed. Each one of us is carried away and enticed. The teacher paused and said, quote, do you see that word enticed? Enticed by whom? That's the devil, he said. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you don't have to be a scholar. It's not rocket science to see how mistaken that is. James tells us 
James tells us who does the enticing. All you have to do is finish the sentence. Each one of us is tempted when he's carried away by and enticed by his own desire. His own desires. Not demonic desires, not satanic desires. His desires. His fallen desires. You have those. James is very clear. Sin happens in our hearts totally without his internal involvement in demonic. Battle always starts with our own inward desires. Here's another text. I said there were three. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. By the way, the reason for this, I don't want to wear you out going through the whole New Testament. When somebody shows you something, just one phrase in one verse, and they build a whole case on it, you should always at least yourself say, well, well, what does the rest of the text? Are there other places in the New Testament where this is dealt with? So you see the the whole panorama of Scripture. So that's why I'm picking a few, all right? Galatians 5, 16 to 24. I'm trying to show you the same idea now. James says, by our own desires, we we get enticed. Dragged away, leads to sin. 16, Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, this is just your flesh, that's all that's being talked about here, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh. Look at this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and as if that wasn't enough, and things like those. What he means is all these kinds of evils... I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have, here it is, crucified the flesh. That's what James is talking about. Those desires with its passions and desires. So again, the enemy of the Holy Spirit is identified. And in this text, as in James, the enemy of the Holy Spirit is what? My desires, the flesh. The Spirit's internal enemy, the internal enemy, that's all we're looking at tonight, is the flesh. The enemy is uncrucified passions and desires, verse 24. That's a very important passage. Paul is specifically dealing with the inward battle of the Christian. Spiritual warfare is what he's talking about. It is the subject Paul is investigating. And yet in all of those, as with James, no mention of demons in the souls, nothing like that. Another passage. Let's do one more. Romans 8, 5 to 13. Tell me if you see the common thread here. For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds. Who sets the mind? Well, they, they do. I do. 
So Paul in Galatians is talking about people who, who push back with the help of the Holy Spirit, push back against their own desires, the inclinations, the reflex reactions, the, the, the quick desire, the impulsiveness that lingers in all of us from the fall. Galatians, Paul says, these are contrary one to another. They're, they're fighting against each other. What happens if you lose that battle? What if you just give in to the flesh? Well, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Do you remember what James said? James talked about being enticed by our own desires, how sin is conceived and gives birth to sin and leads to death. Same here, right? Exactly the same thing. Same process. Same desires, this is what happens. So it's just an exact repetition. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Not talking about the devil, it's talking about inward hostility of your desires. It does not submit to God's law, indeed, it cannot. You need the Holy Spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In the flesh is a person who yields to the desires of the flesh. doesn't mean this. We're all in the flesh and that we have bodies. We're not ghosts floating around. He's not talking about that. He's talking about yielding to those desires. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't go both ways. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Holy Spirit is in all Christians. Pentecostals do not believe they alone have the Spirit. Whatever somebody tells you, that's not the case. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now, that's these bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, notice the same thing. Three passages in a row. There are dozens. Demons aren't talked about here. Not in Christians. Not in Christians. I don't need to go through the whole New Testament, but I, I do need to show you that this isn't coming from one verse or just the way one word is used in some illustration. This is, the, this is the whole big panoramic backdrop of the New Testament. The overall teaching of the New Testament about the inward battle for Christians, the inward battle, not the external battle with Satan and the way he tempts. We're going to look at that next week. I'm just talking right now about the inside battle that we all face. The battle exists because, Paul says, there are these two opposing forces. One is the Holy Spirit. The other is those fleshly desires, the sinful nature, the self, the fallen nature, original sin, whatever term you want to use. The flesh and the battle with the flesh is not a demonic battle. It is frequently in unsaved. But that's not us. 
And that's not what Paul is describing in these texts. He's talking about the direction of the mind. You can see it in 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, there it is, on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I just believe it is dishonest to the Scriptures and it's harmful to our spiritual growth to treat the inward battle with the flesh as though it were somehow an inward battle with demons in our souls. One other thing I want to talk about. Something I'm sure you've heard, seen maybe over and over and over. One of the ways that the spiritual warfare movement See, somehow they have to make this work. They have to get, in Christians, they have to get demon powers in the soul, even though there's no evidence for it in any of the New Testament literature dealing with Christian people. But they want it there. They want it there because the whole spiritual warfare movement dies when you take that away. So they have to have it. There has to be demonic activity in the soul of Christians. And the way they do it is by switching labels. You've heard this over and over, I'm sure. Lust becomes a spirit of lust. Anger becomes a spirit of anger. Resentment becomes a spirit of resentment. And it's more than simply a matter of terminology. It's not just semantics. This is an important doctrinal change. And it's done out of necessity for their theological system. If my whole aim is to emphasize the demonic, then attitudinal sins of the flesh can't be all there is in this battle. And so I have to rename them. It has to do with the core of the spiritual warfare issue. The solution for demonization is expulsion. The solution to sins of the flesh is denial. And death to self. I like so much, uh, I read quite a bit of uh, Rodman Williams. Listen to these penetrating words from his Renewal Theology, Volume 2. Rodman Williams, he writes his systematic theology. He's a great scholar. And he writes yet from a thoroughly Pentecostal perspective. He believes deeply in the presence and power of the demonic, as I've defined it in this series. He writes as a believer in spiritual warfare, as we're defining it tonight. And yet here's what he says about this issue of misdiagnosing the source of the inward battle of the Christian. He says this, It is a critical mistake to seek to exercise or cast out or expel sins from a believer. For the true believer, one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, the inner problem is not demonic possession, but the desires of the flesh. Hence, what is called for is not casting out or deliverance, but crucifixion and putting to death. Of course, we should know this. It fits exactly with what Jesus talked about. Disciples, not the world, disciples following him. How they would have to deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him. It's exactly what Jesus said. Crucifying the flesh. That's what that cross is that we carry. Be very careful whenever inward human sins are redefined into personal demonic lingo. The change 
the change is made with no scriptural evidence to support it. I want to wrap up now. Just a couple of pages of notes. I want to wrap up with what is used as the most common, because there aren't very many examples. There's one that they go to over and over again, and I want to talk about it. It's in 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul writes, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus. He's having a tough time, Timothy. And maybe he feels like quitting. I don't know. Those kind of times come. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Some of the translations will say God has not given us a, a spirit of fear. There they say. There it is. See, spirit of fear. And then it just, gets, it just gets transposed larger and larger. So if there's a spirit of fear, there's a spirit of anger, there's a spirit of greed, there's, all these things are demonic. You need deliverance. And so that text, 2 Timothy 1, 7, it's the only example they have. For God gave us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power, love, self-control. That's ESV. Now, that verse is frequently cited as a description of the demonic spirit of fear being in the believer. So the argument is given that the spirit of timidity or the spirit of fear is actually a demon spirit. But you won't find any commentary anywhere that reads the passage that way. And the reason is pretty obvious. He's talking about God. God didn't give us a spirit of fear but of love, power, and a sound mind. Does, does Paul, think about it, does Paul actually have to remind Timothy that God isn't in the business of giving demons to his beloved children? Seriously? Especially to his faithful pastors and leaders. Is that what that text is about? Does Timothy actually think God gave him a demon? Was Paul worried that Timothy, whom Paul thought was so mature, wise in the faith, that he left him in charge of one of the largest, strongest churches in Asia Minor, the congregation at Ephesus? Did Paul think Timothy would be unsure whether or not God gave out demons to those who were trying to do his ministry? Let me give you a better reading of the text. One that's more fitting to the context. Paul has just reminded Timothy of some incredible moment, we can't imagine when it happened, of spiritual gifting that had taken place and that started Timothy on his path to pastoring. It's talked about in 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. So there was some kind of ordination, some kind of ceremony And Paul says, Timothy, God just gifted you something supernatural. Met your need. Now Timothy's having a rough time. Isn't life like that? It's like that for pastors, too, you know? Here, 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 here. He's having a tough time. There's trial, there's persecution. Sometimes, sometimes the people love you, sometimes the people hate you. 
And so Paul, he's trying to encourage Timothy. And here's what he's saying to him. Timothy, I know you're in the thick of it right now. But there's still so much work to be done. Remember the gifting of the Holy Spirit that came into your life in such a powerful way? That's verse 6. Now remember, that Holy Spirit is not a timid spirit. He's not a fearful spirit. That's not what God gave you, Timothy. When God gave and gifted you with his spirit, he gave you a powerful spirit, a sound spirit, a bold spirit. And the spirit will lead you into discipline, faithful ministry, even in the face of persecution. That's in verse 7. So don't shrink back. Don't worry about my suffering either. That's in verse 8. God, through his indwelling spirit, is big enough, faithful enough to get his plan finished for our lives. That's verse 9. That's what that passage is about. Timothy's not stupid. He knows knows that when they laid hands and prayed for him, it wasn't a demon that he got. Paul doesn't have to tell him that. The only spirit mentioned in that text is the Holy Spirit. He's in all believers. Paul is saying to him the same thing he said in 1 Timothy 4.14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul is calling this to Timothy's mind. And every, every major commentary on that passage will tell you exactly the same thing. There's just no evidence anywhere in the New Testament of people labeling emotions demons. It doesn't happen. And Christians should be careful. Oh, I don't have time. Can I take five minutes? What are you going to do, eh, really? I try in my ministry... If you attend here regularly, you would know this. I try in my ministry to go in the opposite direction. I understand. I have no beef whatsoever when people come to me and they'll say something like this. Pastor Don, I just just sensed in my spirit that God wanted me to do such, 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 such. And I have no problem with that. Uh, When I talk to people, I will always just say, you know, I was praying about this, thinking about this, and I really believe that I should, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to give people the impression that that every that every time um, that every time there's some kind of uh, inward emotional thing happening in my life that it's spirits either good or bad. I believe that I believe Jesus is Lord of all my life. Um, If I were, I have at different times spoken what I think is a prophetic word to the church, I never come out, and you know this, I never come out with the, yea, my people, thus saith the Lord thy God. I I never do that. I want to give them a chance, A, to discern what I'm saying, and if I make like I'm just taking dictation from God, then there's no point in you discerning what I'm saying. You just have to do what I say. And pastors use that all the time in churches. Gives you a pretty heavy hammer. I'll always just say, you know, church, I I really think what God wants us to do is blah, 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 blah. And they recognize that God is speaking to me, and I'm trying as best I can with my fallen nature to interpret and apply that to the church as best I can, and it gives them a chance to say, yeah, you know, I've sensed the same thing. Or, boy, Pastor Don, wow, you might want to think about that one a little while. And that's fair, too. 
That's what Paul means when he talks about others discern what is said. But when you get to the place that everything is a spirit, spirit of anger, spirit of greed, spirit of lust, and every time you open your mouth, you're just hot off the wire saying everything that God tells you to say. Either way, the, the human side, that beautiful, increasingly redeemed temple of the Holy Spirit, the mind, it's very easy to manipulate things either way. I don't say this so, well, gee, now I can't say anything about the Spirit. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that here's what I think happens. I haven't got a verse for this, and you're welcome to take it home with you or leave it here. My, my gut feel is this. Um, I've, been, I've been walking with Jesus for 54 years. My conviction is the closer I get to him and the longer I walk with him, the more difficult it is to tell where God's work in my mind starts and where my work in my mind ends. And I believe that's his intent. I believe he wants to be sanctifying all of me so that my life is in him and his life is in me. And there's a wonderful blending as he more and more conforms me. That doesn't mean there aren't times where I don't blow it badly. When I do, as a Christian, I'm not blaming the demon of anything. I'm going to blame the fallenness of Don Horbin. And I'm going to repent. I don't have to repent if it's demons, right? I just need somebody to clean them out of me. Do you see what this does to the doctrine of repentance? That humble, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Next week, the external battle that the Christian has, because there is one with the devil and the way he works. We'll cover that next Sunday night.